Welcome to Real Tall Tales, a podcast where we uncover the extraordinary stories of ordinary people. We're your hosts. I'm Cassie Young. And I'm Munir McJohnny. It's the biggest night of your life. It's all on the line and you're staring down the barrel of success. And then the entire course of your life shifts in one moment. Could you imagine losing your entire life savings in one night? It happened to today's guest. Josh, a second generation Korean American born in Queens, and now lives in Atlanta, and we work together as commercial real estate agents at Sands Investment Group. So how the hell did you burn down a brand new hotel on opening night? Well, I didn't burn it down. I mean, we had this tour group of like 45 people, international tour group. We had just set up this boutique hotel. It was like a 40-room, really beautiful, old French historic building that me and my partners had renovated and decorated and brought back to life and we had this rooftop bar and lounge and we are hosting our first tour group having a great dinner and then uh, all of a sudden everyone starts smelling smoke and I'm like maybe they're burning some things outside like incense or this I mean you're, you're Vietnam. in Vietnam this right yeah Hanoi Vietnam so I'm like they're burning stuff outside all the time this is nothing I look outside I don't see anything like that happening but I do feel some sort of like tingling sensation on my head then I look up and I see these like bright orange flames. And you, for wait, a so moment, you see the flames above. It's not like Spidey sense where you're like, oh, something's going on. It's like literal fire. Yeah, there was like a hot blow dryer on my head. Literally five seconds, I just froze. And I'm like, this is a dream. Like I need to wake up. And then sure enough, I stuck my head out further. And I see like 10 foot flames going up on the roof. And so it was me and the operating partner there. And I told him, look, there's a real fire upstairs. We're going to evacuate everyone immediately. And he's like, ah, just no way. I'm just going to, yeah, I'm just going to take this, you know, extinguisher and uh, check it out. Meanwhile, I'm like, okay, he's not capable of understanding the situation. <laughs> so like, I'm going to take a, control. I knocked over a candle. We're talking about, yeah. <laughs> yeah. What I did Story see. big flames. In the corner of my eye is a guy ridiculously trying to go up to the roof, coming straight back down. And I start seeing black smoke just following him. And he's like, you're right. And I'm like, yeah, I'm right. So is this roof area, is that the part where the rooftop bar? So yeah, that was the rooftop and there was like this karaoke room. And this is Vietnam. And that karaoke room on the top level wasn't built to code or anything, right? And it was highly flammable. So my guess is that one of my partners or one of the guests had gone up there to smoke a cigarette. Maybe. Oh, wow. Yeah. And this thing was asbestos and carpet and, you know, there's the most flammable (laughs) material you can think of in the world. And yeah, like the whole idea of that night was actually to have enjoyed this great traditional Vietnamese dinner for these people who've come to Vietnam from all around the world for the first time. To stay in this luxury boutique French restored hotel. (laughs) And then have dinner and then go upstairs to enjoy karaoke. So imagine that. And so I turned around and I've opened the door to the stairwell. And I've said, look, this is not a drill. I'm not trying to be funny, guys. There's real fire happening. So everyone's going to take these stairs down. And no one moved. Everyone was pretty drunk and very happy. And then I started shouting and I'm like, get down. So everybody... Because there's no fire alarms or anything like no that. No fire alarm. So... <laughs> but so, you don't have to have fire alarms? It's like, that's not a code thing. Well, this is... I mean... Southeast Asia, it's yeah. very third world still in that sense. That's a luxury. No, so I'll be honest. Like, even the fire alarms here will go off and... Right. 
We're like, but is it real? Yeah. Is this a drill? So it's like the fire yeah. alarm that cried wolf too yeah. many times yeah, and you never sure. actually believe it right. until someone starts screaming and then you're like, this is real. You know we gotta yeah. go. Even if I had seen smoke or sense that, I would have thought, you know, maybe there's something happening in the kitchen or something. The only reason I acted the way I did, and I'm so glad that I did some investigating, was because I saw the flames. And that moment, it changed me like as a person, seeing those flames so close to me and knowing that. I didn't tell you guys this, but there were actually like propane gas tanks, like a row of propane gas tanks on the roof. And it was the cheese to cook there, right? So, yeah, the kitchen was hooked up to these tubes that got sourced from these tanks. And this could be super bad now. It could burn down like the city, you know, the block. Yeah, you've got like an explosion waiting to happen. Explosion waiting to happen. So I told my partner, go down with these people, escort them down. But as soon as you do, tell that girl in the lobby to pull the fire alarm, like the real one, whatever one we have (laughs) that manually can be triggered, you better pull it. And she did. But, you know, we were such a bootstrap operation because it's a boutique hotel that I'm sure I was in my mind. I knew that the girl in the lobby who's like a college recent grad, right. right? She didn't have any like code about what to do in this situation. So this was a real test for me. Like as a person, what do I do? I know that we are 70% occupied tonight. Which is great for opening night too, by the way. Yeah. Congratulations. Right? Well, <laughs> congratulations Maybe. on the fire. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> so I just started going door to door on the next floor down, knocking every You just uh, got to get people door. out getting people out at the same time i'm like maybe i should just get as far as away from this place as possible because probably i'm one of the few people who knows what can really happen right but i'm like man i'm gonna regret this yeah that'd be heavy on your conscience. yeah how many months of work did you guys put into this hotel it was actually like three four months it was a quick conversion we did i mean things happened very quickly there obviously yeah because you don't need to build anything to code. So you can like see your dreams get built like overnight, you know? So we got down to the lobby. Everyone got out. I was very happy. We crossed the street. And when I look up, the whole city, and this is like the most touristy part of Hanoi, capital city of Vietnam, okay? You have thousands of people lined outside looking up and this building's on fire. And people, the way Vietnamese react of course, I couldn't get out of, like, my feeling of shock and stuff. Right. People are just taking selfies. You know, they're like, this is... You're like, this just, building could collapse. It's yeah. fire. Get away from it. I'm like, everyone back up further, you know? let's We got to clear this area completely. They're just here for the show. They're just, yeah. They're like, it's a bonfire. It's awesome. A bonfire of your entire life savings. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> Unfortunately. <laughs> That's a tip to our listener. If you ever go to a hotel, make sure they have fire codes and fire drills on every floor. An owner with a conscience who will go door to door and get you out. That is (laughs) wild, right? So your entire, and you were in Vietnam through this trail of work that you were doing as a former Jehovah's Witness. And so you're an immigrant. Your parents moved in the 80s with $5 in their pocket, right? That's like the classic immigrant story. Every dad moved here with like $2 in their pocket. And now they're like made this entrepreneur self out of themselves, right? And your family, you grew up as a Jehovah's Witness in the United States? Yeah, for sure. I mean, the Jehovah's Witness roots go back like way before that in Korea, actually. This is quite an international organization. You know, my parents and my grandparents have been part of that religion for a very long time the immigration experience was intense and by all means challenging but on top of that yeah like 
the religious duties were the constant, right? My family is always looking to God to get through mm-hmm. anything, through the day. So were you one of those people who went door to door on a bicycle and... Yeah, well... It was in cars. Okay. So, you know, I don't want to paint that picture. You know, let's we keep actually it real. Had, yeah, it yeah, like, yeah, yeah. When I used to live in Riverdale, they used to come by all the time. But because we had such neighborhoods, they were literally on bikes. Oh, and really? Because it was easier to go between neighborhoods yeah. and not have to take the main streets. Yeah. But that was like the first time that I ever experienced that community. And it was like, oh, shit, this is very real. For sure. No, it's very systematic. You know, it's the canvassing is like, you know, what territory did we cover? You know, what part of... You know, the, the country do we have to focus on? How many rounds do we make on certain people? You make notes. And I was, of course, like any other kid dragged out, you know, especially on the weekends to spend like all day in hot, rainy, cold weather, whatever it was, yeah. all seasons. So I was a preacher. So how many people would you say that you actually had sort of bite, you know, had taken interest in what you were doing? So if you spent all day canvassing or going door to door, you know, spreading the message... How many would you say you actually think you roped, roped in is not the right word, Yeah, but got to be interested. Yeah, yeah. It kind of reached, right? Yeah. That's, that's how I like to think of it. I was quite successful. And a lot of my thing was to talk about, you know, it's funny, family values, right? I'm this like, you know, 10 year old or 15 year old kid talking about, you know, how can you have better family relationships? And also talking about what happens with life after death. Serious topics, you know, that's how I grew up. So So for those who may not know, give us a snippet of what are the beliefs of Jehovah's Witnesses? What are the core values? What are we looking at here? Core values, I guess that there's only one true God and he deserves to be worshiped exclusively. And the values in the Bible, we're talking about Old Testament Mm -hmm. and you combined represent his values. Okay. And that's literal. So whatever they believe has to be solidly based in the scripture. And basically, they don't believe in hell, like a fiery Mm. hell, that death is just a state of non-existence. But those who do have a relationship with God and strove to do the right things in their life will have a chance of living everlasting life on earth post-death. They'll be resurrected. Oh, interesting. Okay. So not so much the fiery punishment, so much as annihilation. Yeah. Yeah. Which is yeah. still scary in and of yeah. itself, yeah, but yeah, at absolutely. least it's not torture. So do they consider themselves as Christians or an offshoot or... Christians, but like, you know, to them, they're Christians in the purest sense. Purest sense. Like the first century Christians, like those who are actually baptized with Jesus, right? So Now, can you talk a little bit about the community? Like what happens if you were to choose to leave? I have a lot of first-hand experience <laughs> with that. Um <laughs> It wasn't a choice, right? So it's kind of one of those things that, and I can only speak from my experience, but the reality is that if you stop believing that it's an issue, right? So if you lose your conviction, your faith in any way, and you stop coming to the meetings and you stop coming to participate, then that means you're naturally going to be distanced by everyone in the organization. Because the number one fear is a bad influence, someone who's losing their faith. Right. You don't want to instill those seeds of doubt in others, even though a lot of different faiths will say, have your doubts and question them, but it's still. That was my problem. I could never feel like there was a forum where I could really express my doubt without being heavily judged Mm. and that I didn't have a chance to say, well, let me just take a little bit of time to figure out who I am. Let me try something where it's not high pressure. 
you so know. already, even though you were still a Jehovah's Witness, you were sort of being trying to think of a gentle way of saying not excluded or pushed out, but just sort of iced out a little bit. People were distancing themselves, and I'm sure that had an impact and fed the fuel to the fire of your doubt a little bit, too. Yes and no. Like, I've been so close to both the theory of this religion as well as the, the headquarters, like, I've lived that life. I was an ordained minister. I got up at like 5.30 every morning. I didn't get paid a dime. I would go to morning worship. I was working, devoting my whole life to this religion. And so it wasn't a shock to me in any ways. It was just that I realized I'm distancing myself too. And I'm doing it as a favor to those who have their faith Mm. so strong and alive. I felt guilty. Like you shouldn't be talking to me. I understand. I get it. So you mentioned kind of working at, you know, headquarters as well, right? And we've talked about this on several occasions. So you actually were in college, ended up dropping out to go do this. What was that kind of like, especially as Asians who our parents are always like education, 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 to kind of hear this on the other end, what kind of led to that? Well, it's really weird. Like, even though I hadn't applied myself through high school because I had planned out this life of, of being a minister full time. Somehow I did get a full scholarship to a really good state college. And then once I got there, you know, the rhetoric of the religion really was discouraging higher education and higher education, meaning college and getting a degree and going after those types of secular stuff. And so it got to my conscience and I said, wait a minute, why am I learning about psychology? Why am I learning about business? Why am I learning about economics? You know, Mm when I should be devoting all this time to see how I can serve God more fuller and live a more meaningful life in that sense. So I gave that up and I realized that I was ignoring this huge part of me that wanted to learn those things, found them super interesting. You know, high school was boring to me. College was where I was like, man, this is where you learn the fun stuff. That was a big sacrifice, but I felt very noble in in the, the reasons, right? And so I went to go work for the headquarters for like five years and my faith had been slowly dissipating through that whole time because you get into, it's an international organization, amazing people, but some parts become bureaucratic. Some parts, a lot of parts become just monotonous Mm -hmm. and a lot of things don't have to do with faith. And then I was like, I really need to do something to stir this up, find God again. And so that's what brought me to field work in Vietnam. So that's when he started working with the deaf and hard of hearing. Yeah. What was it that you drew you to that? I had been helping out with uh, a couple of groups in Long Island. We were always encouraged to pick up a new language to help these marginalized groups, right? Who might not be preached to as often as they are in English, mm-hmm. right? So we're like, okay, who could be that? You know, you have a lot of Chinese speaking people who move to the States and there are not enough Chinese speakers. So they're encouraged to learn Chinese or encouraged to learn sign language. So I picked up ASL. Do you still remember it? Yeah, because I've been doing it for a while now. Yeah. I did ASL, and then I went to Vietnam to study VSL, Vietnamese Sign Language. So I've been doing sign language for a while, actually. So you're bi-sign-lingual? <laughs> yeah. <laughs> <laughs> Sounds weird. But yeah. How is that experience working with somebody who we all take listening and speaking for so granted, right? And how was it, you know, working in a community that faces such a, we would call it basic challenge every single day? First of all, sign language is such a beautiful language in that I feel like the distance between verbal communication and your thoughts is maybe like two feet apart. So there's this chasm that you have to get to. What am I feeling and how do I express it? Mm. With sign language, 
it's just right there. It's close. It's a couple of inches. So the moment you feel something, to put that into your hands and face and make it alive and get it across communicating that way, it's the most visceral, it's the most gratifying way of communication. That's what I found beautiful. I found the people, especially deaf and hard of hearing in Vietnam, to be very, very special because in a place like Vietnam, all these conditions could have been prevented by early childhood mm. care, by like basic things. And on top of that, they're being abused by their own family members, being treated as like slaves of the family. And so to be able to help them, I began focusing less on like, well, look, you have to start believing in God and here are the principles and here's the guidebook. I focused on, let's get this relationship right with your parents. Let's get you empowered through finding you a job learning a trade you know let's work on this communication that you can have with hearing right. people let's fight for your rights basically because it's a huge barrier for them to not be able to communicate and families not only to treat them like second-class citizens basically but additionally on top of that not being able to communicate is frustrating for both parties which just kind of fuels this fire of almost hate you know what i mean like yeah. that frustration you don't want to deal with it so for you to go in there and really build that bridge so to speak and help these people get on equal footing and have equal standing is a really huge deal. I think we gave community to people who need mm. community the most and a place where they can feel accepted. And so I learned a lot and I'm truly grateful for those opportunities. Very interesting. So not to have you speak on behalf of like the 8 million Jehovah's Witnesses out there in the world, right? But two things that I've always been interested in is one, they don't celebrate most holidays other than Jesus' death around Easter. And then they also have this belief that only 144,000 people will go up to heaven. What are those two things about? Right. So 144,000 is actually a literal number you can find in the Bible. There's a group of people that's supposed to have a special calling to heaven. And so from what I mentioned before, everyone else, and that would have included me, not anymore, but that would have included me in that they get to just stay on earth. They're resurrected, but not in like a spirit form, but they get to continue on with human physical bodies that just go on forever. Okay. So, so it's not like you're going to just cease to exist or punishment. Like, yes, right. you want to be part of that 144,000, but if you're not, all is not lost. Oh, no, no. So generally... You know, you mentioned the 8 million. Most of those people have accepted that we're not going to heaven, but we get to enjoy this great thing called earth that according to the Bible is supposed to be forever. Like earth is supposed to stay. There's no comet that's supposed mm. to appear. There's no like major catastrophe that's supposed to happen. It's supposed to last, right? And so this is where the home is for most of those folks. And with regards to holidays, because Jesus specifically mentions you know, I want you to remember my death. I want you to commemorate it. That's the only holiday. That's well, kind of funny to call it a holiday, but you know what I mean? That's right. the only thing right, that right. is observed. It's a holy day. We'll, yeah. We'll yeah. Rephrase, holy day. Yeah. And everything else like Christmas or, I don't know, Valentine's Day and Halloween or, you know, all the good stuff is not celebrated by them because, you know, if you do your research, you know, if you really look into it, there's some pagan hmm. influence. There's some mingling with different religions and different, you know. Oh, yeah. So. Halloween is based off All Saints Day right. and the yeah. Day of the Dead and protecting yourself against evil spirits. Yeah. Yeah, absolutely. Valentine's Day is St. Valentine. Like, you could definitely right. do there's a always, deep yeah. dive into it. Interesting. So what was the final straw, so to speak, that had you make your transition from 
being in this community, being, you know, a Jehovah's Witness, working with the deaf and hard of hearing to then going into this entrepreneurial role, going into those hotels and all of that. What kind of made that switch click? I was trying to do both. I couldn't ignore what I wanted to do entrepreneurially. I couldn't ignore my desire to really try things, right? And make something of myself in terms of business, in terms of all these projects that... Can I just point out, you want to make something of yourself and yet you are literally helping the Vietnamese deaf and hard of hearing Most people are like, I got up today before yeah. noon, I made something of myself. Yeah. Well, I mean, I guess like... I totally get it. You want yeah. to explore those passions you talked about I want to do something for me. Mm-hmm. And I wanted to learn something, right? I wanted to have that opportunity to grow as a person, use my mind. I think that was the biggest thing. I'm like, maybe I'll die giving people a lot of things to a certain extent, but not having done anything for myself. And that's the struggle. Uh, I think I do try to appease my family and be part of that religion and just kind of have it all, you know, eat my cake and have it too. Yeah. What was um, the reaction of your community once you just, did you make like an official announcement that you're leaving? Did you just fade out? I, I have just faded. And it, the actions I've took of not contributing have signified that I no longer am in it. Do you, are you it's still- a very proactive Mm-hmm. practice in that sense right so i told my folks that i was gonna you know getting into a serious relationship with someone who's not in that fold these are all very very grave signs to start seriously distancing right from me you can't you know i've got friends who say i'm kind of like you know a lay christian or i'm culturally muslim you can't be that as a jehovah's witness i'm very... so envy i'm so <laughs> jealous of you guys who are like oh i'm culturally well, i was born into no it doesn't work like that you're cut off so it's, are, it's an everyday thing. All contacts cut off because I, I had someone, I'm part of another show, who came on the air and she had just decided she no longer wanted to be a Jehovah's Witness. And I think she was 20, 21 and her parents heard it. And she didn't realize and they cut off all communication with her. Is it like if the Amish community too, where if you decide not to come back mm-hmm. from Rumspringer where you're cut off or can you still have communications so and ties? It really, there's a few exceptions. It would have to do with like serious health life and death stuff, maybe some business that you can use as an excuse, but you're not supposed to have a personal relationship with. I may have a better chance having a relationship with someone in my family if I had a business with them, Mm. which is something like I wish, you know, could have been a great excuse. But I have to tell you that the reason behind this cutoff, aside from the feelings of betrayal, aside from the disappointment, the main thrust of that, the motive is to love by cutting off to make me realize how lonely it is in this world and how regretful I should be of my decisions. And so come begging back for love. That time away is supposed to teach me a lot of lessons. And unfortunately, it has done a lot of the opposite and it has made me more of a free thinker and more open-minded and just more bigger picture. Mm -hmm. At the same time, I'm not a bitter person. I feel very spiritual. I feel like I'm destined to give in bigger ways now. But I'll tell you this, as crazy and hard as it is to say, if there was a Kool-Aid that was so good, so potent and powerful that I can drink to make me believe in this religion so that I could have my family back, I would drink it right now. The problem is I can't wake up one day and say, you know what, let me just pretend that I believe, mm-hmm. you know. So to answer your question, Manir, it was just that I couldn't keep diluting my doubt. Right. I couldn't keep stamping it down I and who to you were it and who I, who I am and who I become interesting too to call back to what you said earlier about 
when you were having the doubts, you totally understood why people needed to distance yourself. It sounds like it's very much a religion of humility as well and protecting the other mm -hmm. person by insulating yourself in a way. So like you understood why they were distancing themselves when you were having your doubts and you wanted that because you didn't want to impose those restrictions on them. But now it's like you're wrestling with you have this self and the knowledge and the experiences that you have gained on your journey through life. And how do you reconcile that with this religion where it feels like you're trying to put a like square peg into a round hole? You know, and it's not the same for everybody, but yeah. I'm, I'm not trying to in any way disparage any religion. We yeah. are open on this podcast to everyone, believers and non-believers, but every person's life experience is different. And I can't imagine the struggle that you've been through grappling with this. Yeah. I mean, I really think to myself, a lot of times that if people had been with me on my journey to Vietnam, to these remote parts of Thailand, I mean, I've seen people in situations that don't make sense, didn't add up to me. In many ways, those are the experiences that made me doubt more. And I felt that, well, sometimes it's a matter of time. It's a matter of experience. You know, I think you would come to some of the conclusions I've come to. Mm -hmm. It's just hard to tell people that. And the saddest thing is that, you know, obviously losing family and friends, thinking about the people I wish I could talk to who I've been so close to over the years and just wondering how they're doing. That's, that is a day-to-day -day struggle. Yeah. But, you know, thank God for my fiance. And I was just going to say, so now you're starting a family of your own. And this came out of a silver lining from Vietnam when you were leaving, transitioning back to America you actually met your now beautiful fiance on your flight from Taipei to Tokyo. So how was that? Did you end up sitting next to her and just annoy her the entire flight? Yeah. <laughs> this is kind of a stalker story, let me just say. It's a little bit weird. Like, so I was at the Taipei airport and I was checking in. And, you know, at this time, my allergies were just hyperactive. So you have snot coming down my nose. The smoke from the fire still kind of in there. <laughs> <laughs> Sentimentally, yes. Like I was still crying from that. And so I had my sunglasses on and everything. And I was like, I don't want to talk. I don't want nobody look at me, right? But I turned around and noticed this cute girl behind me. And I was like, oh, well, we'll never have that chance. Anyways, I checked in. At different parts of the airport, I would see this attractive woman having coffee alone, you know, doing some shopping. I thought we were kind of, you know, catching each other's eye and getting some sort of vibe going. I get to the gate and she's there. She's sitting at the same gate. So I think, you know what? Let me take this Benadryl. <laughs> <laughs> Let me get the situation figured out because I, I want to really want to talk to her. I, I wonder if she's, you know, Taiwanese. I wonder if she's Japanese. But anyways, I finally start clearing up. I sit down right behind her and she just takes off, boards the plane right there. Later, I get on the plane, and it turns out that we're sitting on the same row opposite of the aisle. So I'm like, great, this is meant to happen. So I sit down, and uh, you know how, you know, like, sometimes you feel that two people are looking at the same object and sharing this moment, right? And so I kind of looked at something in the aisle, and I was, my head was tilted towards her, and I can notice from my peripheral vision that her head was tilted in my direction as well. And then after a while, I looked up to say hello and noticed that she was falling asleep hard. Because <laughs> her head was still there because she was sleeping. Exactly. Before the plane even took off, she had knocked out. The plane landed like a couple hours later. She was still deep asleep. <laughs> Only when the lights come on 
and we have to uh, get off the plane. Does she wake up? I noticed she had a carry-on bag on the overhead bin. So I was like, maybe I can help her out. So I reach for it and she looks at me and says, it's okay. I got it. <laughs> Yanks that thing out. Manhandles it. Gets off the plane. At this point, I'm just so sad. I let everybody get off before me. I'm the last person off the plane. But when I'm coming out, I notice, you know, she's still there kind of rearranging something in her suitcase. And the next 20, 30 minutes is just two of us walking down because it was such a budget flight. We had like the last mm-hmm. terminal. We're just like walking on this like moving walkways forever and ever. She's in front of me. I'm walking behind her. <laughs> oh, not together. Not no. together. You're we still straight up stalking at this point. Yeah. So, so far, <laughs> he's been lurking on her while she sleeps. He tried <laughs> yeah. to steal her luggage and now he's stalking her. I'm kidding. Yeah. No, everybody's gone. Everybody's gone. So I'm like, we're both wondering, like, where did everybody go? Are we going the right direction? Anyways, she feels my presence behind her. (laughs) 100%. She reaches for her mace slowly. Just for the pepper spray. And so what she does is she pulls over to the right and she stops. And, you know, that means, like, I'm supposed to pass her, right? right? But guess what I do? Being the weirdo I am. Oh, my God. Did you just stop right behind her? That's exactly what I did. And then, oh my god, for everyone listening, this is 101 of yeah. what not to do. <laughs> yeah. But this is before all that stuff, okay? I mean, I'm glad it worked out well for you guys. Yeah. Well, she turns around, she asked me something in Japanese. She was asking me, you know, are we going in the right direction? You know, but then, you know, I, I told her, yeah, I'm sorry, I don't speak any Japanese. And we struck off a conversation. What language did you strike up a conversation? Oh, in English. Okay. okay. Yeah. So she had studied abroad in Seattle and Canada and everything. So her English was good. For being Japanese, very good. <laughs> and, uh, For those of you listening, she's sitting right next to you. <laughs> They're exchanging eyes. And so we got to customs, right? And, you know, having a foreigner U.S. passport, the line for foreigners mm-hmm. was super long. The queue was like an hour long. For Japanese citizens, you just went through. So I was like, you know what? Let me just get your email. Contact. I'll be here for a week. Let's hang out. And she's like, great. Okay, cool. But, you know, she asked me, aren't you worried? Like, you won't find the Airbnb because your battery's low. And, you know, have you been to Japan? And I'm like, no, I don't really know, but it's okay. Don't worry about it. I'll message you tomorrow. And she says, no, I'll wait for you on the other side of customs. I was like, it's going to be waiting for a while. And she's like, no, I'll wait for you. And she just takes off. And I'm thinking, she's not going to be there. Right. After an hour, sure enough, she was there. She didn't know how to get to my Airbnb either. <laughs> so we were both kind of getting lost and I had all this luggage. I had my life with me oh, wow. from Vietnam, right? So she's like, who's this guy? Like, you know, all these bags and everything. And then we're getting lost together. But she ended up going like in the opposite direction of her house, making sure I get to the right place. And then we spent, you know, the next like five days or so together. And it was just really sweet. And um, I hate it when people tell me this and I'm not that kind of guy. But when I saw her, I knew this person was going to be someone special for me. And so I didn't want to let go of the opportunity. I was super against long distance relationships for a long time, but we made it happen. I mean, we've been going back and forth. You know, I've been going to Japan multiple times. I think like five or six times she's come to visit me. From the U.S., right? So that's long, long distance. We're not talking about Alabama to Georgia. We're talking about East Coast U.S. to Japan. Different time zones, different everything. And you guys are even, while both from East Asia, different backgrounds, right? She's Japanese, you're South Korean. There's this whole contentious situation between Korea and Japan. Right. That can't be ignored. And was I was actually recently asked by her grandparents, 
who I met for the first time. Hey, what do you think about this? Uh, <laughs> what do you think about this situation? Who's in the wrong? Who's in the right? And I was like, um, <laughs> it's a trap. <laughs> yeah. yeah, it's a trap. But yeah, I mean, there's a lot of differences, and yet, you know, we find so many commonalities. And what's know. been the most difficult part of that? You know, now in the world that we live in, as connected as we are through social media, as disconnected as we are through social media. We're seeing marriages cross culture, cross faith, cross religion, all of it, right? And what was for you guys the most difficult part of this? Difficult part wasn't really culture. You know, difficult part was family. Mm. I met someone very special in my life. My family didn't want to meet her. And on the other side, because of this whole Korea, Japan, hating each other's guts, her grandparents and initially her parents also didn't want to meet me. So it's not you enough know, it's that like, it's just religion in the play. Yeah, I have to bring right. politics into it as and, well. Yeah, and families. And there's at least a million Bollywood movies made every year based just on a like Pakistani and an Indian who fall in love or a Muslim and a Hindu. And it's like the entire plot of the movie is literally just that. And it always ends up being the families who are kind of the pain in the butts. I've seen it happen with my friends, but the relationships didn't. I mean, they were yeah. much, much younger, granted. So it was sort of college level. Yeah. We weren't fully independent yet, but it was so frowned so heavily upon by their families that they right. just couldn't make it work. Yeah. And then on top of that, Financially, Munir, you know, this was a time when I was starting a, yeah. a new career. I was literally eating ramen every day. I thought um, that was just in memory of your first meal with her. That's <laughs> not. <why. laughs> you know, I was, I was living out of a box, and yet I'm like, how do I afford that ticket to Japan? Right. And it's kind of looking back now, it's insane. Like, but if you know, why did I think it was going right. to work. But clearly, you both knew because she waited for you for an hour to go through customs. I've been in many a customs line where, as a foreign national, and it's the worst. Mm -hmm. It is so slow. There's never any pens for the paperwork. Like, you can't even have your cell phone out because they'll yell at you. And I don't know what's worse, waiting in the customs line or waiting uh, for someone yeah. to get through it. Like, it's, I've been I think on that's that end too. Worse. Yeah. Where you're like, are you almost there yet? And my sister will sneak a picture of the line and it like wraps all the way down to the back of the plane. And it's just. For her to wait for you and you to like give up your sort of predisposition to hating long distance, like clearly you both were worth it. You know what I mean? Like there's that spark that you recognized. So I asked her, you must have had some level of attraction to me on the plane or on the, she's like, I had never noticed you <laughs> until you stopped walking abruptly behind me, you know? And I was like, well, why did you help me out? Like, you know, why did you feel that? Well, why did you wait for me? And, and she told me that. She felt bad for me. She was also <laughs> kind of, she felt that sense of duty. And it wasn't really attraction. Attraction came later for her. And it was that Japanese culture of. Yeah. It had to do with, for me, you know, upbringing. It just told me, you know, okay, this is an inherently good person. I got lucky in that sense. Right. Mm -hmm. And who I could now trick into loving me. <laughs> so, and were for her, you were just a lost little boy who was, right. his phone was about to die and couldn't find his airbnb yeah i won't imagine like i had my whole life in these bags this is post fire you know this is it's like what is this guy gonna do a serious inflection point in my life right now you've been a successful commercial real estate agent what is next for you it's really cool i'm getting pulled into a lot of different directions but what i want to talk about is donuts and coffee something we're both really passionate about I've been obsessed over high quality donuts with real ingredients and, you know, single origin in-house roasted coffee. 
And I've been literally traveling all over the country, you know, Seattle, Portland, North Carolina, like Texas, different parts, just to try donuts to do my research. Oh, my God. Could you imagine? And this is for your business. You can write all those trips (laughs) off. I'm sorry. What was this trip on uh, January of 2020 or whatever? But the calories stay with you. (laughs) something that you won't be able to write off. So luckily, right now, it looks like we have finally a property and the concept's coming together. The partner is phenomenal. Just a true staple of the community. Has been in the culinary space for 40 years. Oh, wow. Brings a lot of experience. And I'm just, I just feel like there's so many interesting things like that coming together. How do you find a partner? So you guys both love donuts, I'm assuming. But how do you find someone else who loves donuts so much that they want to... I mean, who doesn't love donuts? Open a shop. <laughs> yeah. and cook, I mean, I know, <laughs> I know but like, I, know, I couldn't imagine you, yeah. like trying to put feelers yeah. out being like, hey, so I really love churros. Is there anyone out there who wants to go in on a churro well, business with you me? Imagine that, Craigslist dad. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> well, here's my thing. Like, I think there's so many desserts out there. There's so much fast food. There's so much boring stuff out there that keeps being recreated at the market. And being in commercial real estate, seeing these concepts, seeing these brands, I thought if people try it and see it, they'll get it and they'll love it. So I think a lot, like to answer your question, a lot of it has just been my passion when I talk about it. And people feel that, okay, you know what? I'm not sure about this donut concept, but you may, you may be the guy who pulls it off. He really loves donuts. Yeah. So we're, I mean, we're planning on making these fresh every day, hand cut. They'll be dropped in fryer only when you order them. Oh, wow. There'll only be a few flavors and there'll be very interesting flavors like, you know, carbon. Oh, wow. We're thinking about doing an Indian, like, you know, okay, kind of like a curry flavor. I'm happy to lend my consultant on that. (laughs) So generous of you, Manir. Anything for my good friends. So this really cool sort of gourmet, high-level donut shop with single-origin coffee then. Yep. That's really cool. And when do you think, do you have a timeline yet? I know you said you have a space, so it must be very early on in the process. It's early on in the process, you're right, when we have to go through a lot of stuff right now and working with the city and everything, and this is kind of in, in an upscale suburb north of Atlanta. But, um, you know, I'm feeling pretty optimistic. Hopefully in the next six months or so, we'll That's we'll awesome. Something. Yeah. Okay. I can't wait to see the flavors. It's carbon already. Like, that sounds awesome. Yeah. I mean, I, I'm a big fan of salted caramel and even regular glaze. Don't get me wrong. But it is, that is such a twist on the donut. Thank you. Yeah, that's cool. Yeah, well, we definitely appreciate your openness and sharing your background and your life with us today. And we look forward to tasting these wonderful donuts to come. Thank you, guys. I appreciate you having me. Yeah, and congratulations to you and your fiancé, too. Thank you. On the next episode of Real Tall Tales. Why do some people's lives seem so exciting while others seem to be lacking the thrilling and terrifying aspect of living on the edge? Dr. Ken Carter has made a career out of examining why some people are thrill-seekers, daredevils, and adrenaline junkies, and why some aren't. If you want to know where you fall on that scale and the adventures you can expect from your life, tune in to the next episode of Real Tall Tales, where we talk about the one thing we all experience differently, fear. Fear.